This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I are going to tell you how to prepare for one of life's most common yet most devastating calamities, a house fire. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak. Welcome back, everybody. Rich, what's going on, man? J-Dog. How are you, brother? I'm good, man. I'm good. Um, I'll tell you, things were ATPAF around this house yesterday, (laughs) man. Oh, tell me more. Well, uh, we we got up, and as you know, you and I recorded another episode of the podcast yesterday, which was pretty cool. And uh, then immediately after that, we, we cooked up some uh, eggs and bacon for breakfast and then went, grabbed our EDC packs and went on a little six miler uh, to, it, it was, I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've told the listener, but uh, Kai heard our EDC bag episode and said, man, this sounds really cool. I'm going to put together an EDC bag. And she hadn't had an outing with it yet. So we took that for a little six miler with the two dogs that aren't hobbled by recent surgery. Uh, we came back and we made chili, and man, it was it was just a heck of a day. That's cool, man. I I did a little ATP, not AF, uh, but I did ATP nonetheless. Got up, uh, cooked the family breakfast, and uh, we brought in firewood. It's like forty something degrees here in Tennessee, so brought in our normal firewood stuff. Got a fire going, uh, and then what the hell else did I do after that? I don't remember some other call vehicle uh, preventive maintenance a little bit probably not as in depth as you did because you sent me your a photo of your uh, logbook and you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, I'd love to, man. So the ATP logbooks are available. Those are available on Amazon.com. I actually did my uh, vehicle maintenance in the logbook yesterday for the first time using the actual hard copy book. I got a copy for Kai's car. She did hers. And uh, Rich, have you received your logbook yet? I haven't, but man, I, I got to get one for all the kids because that's, you know, my daughter, she's terrible about that stuff. I think that would be the prompt to get her doing it. And guys, if you got daughters out there that might be a little bit like mine, a little scatterbrained, it might not be a bad idea to get them this and teach them how to use it. Well, Rich, I'll tell you, you um, I probably shouldn't say this on the air, but you should have two sitting in the P.O. box there in Tennessee. Oh, okay. Well, I'll go check it. Yeah, go check it out and uh, and let me know if, if those things are there. But yeah, man, that is a great idea for your kids. Let me tell you, we've, we've had pretty good feedback on that from the listeners. We've had uh, quite a few people buy those, and we've had quite a few listeners uh, write in asking for the PDF, which we're more than happy to give them. So uh, we appreciate everybody responding that uh, to to that, and we hope you find that helpful, man. Like we want to actually make a difference, uh, even if it's a small difference, and make you safer and more dangerous, as the case may be. Well, didn't somebody recently write in after the EDC episode that they grabbed the bag and ran out of the house? Can we talk about that? Yeah, I'm definitely going to talk about that before this episode. Yeah, let's talk about it now. So 
so first of all, two things. This episode is a result of two listeners. One listener wrote in asking if uh, asking if we could do some specific episodes, and this was one of them. How to prepare for a house fire, um, how to prevent a house fire, that sort of thing. And another listener wrote in and said, "Hey, I just have to tell you guys, thank you." And I, this list—I'm not going to say this listener's name—but he wrote in and said, "I just got to tell you guys, thank you. I listened to the EDC episode. I loved it. I started, you know, putting together some backups of my data and encrypting that stuff, and working on my backpack that I normally carry to work, throwing some things in that. And my wife thought I was—she <laughs> was looking at me a little bit sideways until we wake up. The house is full of smoke. And he said, "Long story short, everybody got out. House is fine." It was a it was a heater issue, uh, but they have a new furnace on the way. And he said, you know, nothing nothing lost. But he said it sure felt good to be able to grab that bag, know he had a warming layer, know he had his critical data in that bag, and, and some things like that. So, man, we are thrilled to death to get feedback like that. Yeah, and that's that is amazing. And I think that when you can do that in front of your significant other, you know, it it shows them your confidence and your competence and all and I think that kind of stuff is sexy. I think someone that is confident and competent in their abilities and has the means and the uh, ability to do those kind of things are just I think it's sexy male or woman. What do you think? I totally agree, man. And uh, I, I'll just say I didn't hassle Kai into getting an EDC bag. I didn't tell her she needed one. As a matter of fact, the reason we had never talked about it before is I really believe, man, like you got to want to do that that type of thing. And she didn't really know anything about it or about what the hell I was talking about when I said EDC bag until she listened to that episode. And it just uh, it got her going, man. And uh, now she has one that's uh, actually probably just as well outfitted as mine and she carries it to work every day and absolutely loves it so yeah i i I find that sexy as hell man well it's like a problem to solve you know how can i be proactively prepared for these problems that may arise and how can i get this bag down to the smallest uh parts to take care of most of the problems i I don't know it's a neat little puzzle i like it i definitely agree man and i speaking of the edc thing that's one of our by far most popular episodes one of the episodes that we've gotten the most feedback on and i want to do a follow-up follow-up episode on that and talk about the changes i've made talk about some things that a couple listeners have mentioned to me that I that I never thought of, but I think are phenomenal ideas. Talk about the changes you've made. Um, Kai has a maybe a slightly different spin on how she uses this bag and the things she wants in it. So uh, I, I think that's probably on the horizon sometime in the next couple of months. Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, anyway, man, we're just uh, we're just rambling on here. Um, what are you drinking? I'm drinking our our fave. Uh, Got to get up to get down uh, porter by Wiseacre Brewing. I mean, it's as long as I can get access to it, I, I can't imagine drinking another dark beer right now. I'll tell you what, brother, uh, that is true. But you you've got to try Death by Coconut, man. It it is. Oh man, so it's coconut and chocolate flavored. It's not. They call it Death by Coconut, but it's not overwhelmingly coconutty. It's not overwhelmingly chocolatey. It is just a good, solid, well-rounded beverage. And uh, man, as long as it's on the market, that's uh, that's all I'm going to be drinking for a while. Uh, uh, I, that's not what I'm drinking right now, though. I'm actually drinking something that you can't find on the on the East Coast, and I am really proud to be sitting here drinking. A beer called Cali Creamin from Mother Earth Brewing in Escondido, California, and this is a cream ale that is flavored with vanilla. And 
that I just happened to pick up at a little joint here in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, I, I have not tried that, but I think I have had the Death by Coconut. I want to say you may have brought it here a year ago. I think I did, man. I think I yeah, it was I, think good. I saw it was that real good. and the Got to Get Up to Get Down when I was uh, on the way into your house, and I, those are the two things that I brought, if memory serves. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go uh, to the local liquor store and see if they got that again. Yeah, for sure, brother. Which they probably do now, but um, yeah, that it's worth it's worth trying again. All right, so where do we go from here? All right, man. Uh, so, like I said, this show is a listener request, and he didn't give a lot of guidance. He just said, "I'd like to see a, an episode on protecting yourself from fire." So, I've broken basically broken this out into three categories, and. You know, just to be fully honest, you probably know as much or more about this than I do, considering your previous history. But the three categories I've got here and the kind of the three topics we're going to cover are how to prevent a fire from happening in the first place, which is probably the most important step you can take. The next thing we're going to talk about is protecting your life. That is absolutely the most important thing to protect if a fire does happen because you can replace all your stuff, man. You can replace your money. You can replace your furniture. You can replace your belongings. You can't replace your life. You can't replace your children. You can't replace your significant other. I would say plan for your pets. You can't replace your pets. Uh, And then finally, we'll get into the least important thing, which is protecting your stuff. And I don't know how much we're going to be able to offer here a little bit, but uh, really it's all about preventing that fire from happening in the first place. And if it does, protecting the lives that are in that structure, right? Yeah, totally. And I will say that, uh, you know, because I did do a lot with home fires, and we'll kind of tiptoe around that as we uh, get through today's episode. But, you know, Rich Brown is the world's okayest shooter, grappler, whatever. But I'm going to tell you right now, Justin Carroll is an outline savant. You can take any subject and break it down into its components parts and put together an amazing outline in probably about 15 minutes. And you did a phenomenal job with today's episode. As I read over your outline here, I'm like, okay, I added a few things, but I'm like, this is this is spot on. So um, I'm excited to get into it. And I, and I think the way that you approach this topic is is really good. So you want to get on with uh, step one? Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about preventing a fire from happening. And this, there's going to be a lot of recurring themes here. A lot of words that I noticed I typed multiple times are clean, keeping things clean. There's a reason, uh, you know, there's a reason we stress keeping your equipment clean and in good condition and all that stuff. And uh, especially when we get into preventing a fire, the common causes of house fire are frequently things that haven't been cleaned or things that are kind of out of spec or out of regulation somehow. So first things first, I guess, electrical appliances. Um, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about here, but just in general, you want to make sure you aren't overloading your home's electrical capacity. So there are behind that outlet in the wall, there are wires running to it that carry the electricity to that wire. And there's a carrying capacity based on the diameter of that wire. And if you try to pull too much, what that's going to do is is, as we get those electrons moving through that copper wire, it's going to create friction. It's going to heat that wire. And if it heats it too much, obviously, as you know, it's going to melt that insulation. And then we run into all kinds of other problems. So we should have a fuse box, or probably much more commonly these days, a breaker box in the house that prevents that from happening. If you attempt to draw too much, it'll throw that breaker just to prevent that from happening. But still, you want to be a little cognizant of that. You don't want to put a power strip into the wall and then plug six more power strips into that one and then plug all your stuff into that 
single outlet, do you? No, and <clears throat> we had well, one time we smelled smoke coming from the from the uh, back of the um, refrigerator. So uh, you know, and it was getting overloaded because the house, the surge of the electrical uh, that was coming into the house. Were, was coming in in waves. It wasn't coming in clean. It was coming in dirty. So somebody suggested we put an appliance-specific surge protector on our large appliances. Number one, it would protect them uh, so that we, you know, they wouldn't get torn up. And then the other thing it would do is also protect for fire. So we went around and anything that's plugged in here is is on a surge protector, and uh, I think that's important. I I, I agree, and there's. There's a difference between a power strip and a surge protector, even though they might look similar, right? Yeah, there totally is. So, uh, you know, a lot of times a strip, all it does is give you additional plugs with little to no protection, whereas a surge protector will, it's almost like putting another breaker outside the breaker box. That's the way I always kind of look at it. Yeah, and as you know, I make my living with a computer, and protecting that computer is really important to me. At my place, I have a surge protector that protects not only the electricity coming into it, but also the cable that comes in that provides my internet that goes to my internet appliances and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, absolutely use a surge protector that'll protect your electrical appliances and protect from fire. If those things get a surge of electricity that they are not capable of handling. Uh, I, I would say this is probably the most important and easiest thing to keep an eye on. And that's frayed electrical cords or, and, oh man, Rich, I've seen people do this, cords with the ground pin removed. Do you want to tell us about that? Oh yeah, that's a bad one. Most most listeners will be familiar with the three-pronged electrical cord. The top one that's all by itself is the ground pin, and that keeps it, it uh, grounded. But if you cut that off, you remove a layer of safety and protection from that cord. So if you see one of those where somebody's come in with a pair of uh, snips and cut that thing off, here's what you need to do. Uh, make sure it's unplugged from the wall. Then cut that cord in half and throw it in the trash. I mean, it, it you got to take it out of service immediately. I absolutely agree, man. And I've, I've seen people do that, and it frustrates me every time I do it. And they're like, ah, it'll be fine. Um, and freight electrical cords. So my, uh, um, one of my sister's children had an iPhone or an iPod or something, so, uh, iPad maybe, something with a, a cord that was terribly frayed. The end of it, where it goes into the little connector, had been bent so many times that you could see the little electrical shielding that is basically right inside that rubbery insulation. And they were sitting on the couch, had this thing plugged in, charging, she was playing on her phone or, or iPad or whatever, and I don't know, moved it just the right way that two things touched that shouldn't have touched and spark shot across the uh, couch there and a big puff of smoke on that cord. Unfortunately, the device wasn't damaged. The house didn't catch on fire, but any freight electrical cord should be replaced immediately, if not sooner. Totally. And and while we're on the subject, it's, I think we need to get this out of the way. You know, home fires are the single most common disaster across the nation the single most common so while we have a lot of listeners that are maybe really well prepared for a hurricane if they live on a coastal region they're really well prepared for a tornado or for whatever 
This is the most common thing you're likely to face, no matter where you live in America. So, or taking specific, or I, go I, ahead. I, I'm sorry. No, I'd also say really well prepared for self defense. Yeah, uh, but a house fire is going to affect one in five Americans in their lifetime. It is an extremely common event. And I I think we're one of the worst countries in the world for house fires. We have some ridiculous number of house fires. We do. And I live in a house that's built on the foundation of a home that burned to the ground. And like I've said before, if you live in a rural area like I do, I I don't know what the response time would be. I mean, literally, it it could be up to an hour because we're serviced by volunteer firemen that would have to be mobilized and brought in and and then move over to where I'm at. I mean, so you really, if you're in a rural area, oftentimes you, you may not be alone, but for all intents and purposes, you're alone. Well, that's kind of the beauty and disaster of volunteer firemen. I used to be a volunteer fireman, and the great thing about it is you have people all over the community. So if there's a car wreck, there's probably somebody that lives within a decent Uh, radius of that accident could get there pretty quick. But if there's a house fire, it doesn't matter where those volunteers live. Somebody's got to be at that station and drive those trucks down there and and the specialized equipment that's needed to fight that fire. So uh, yeah, man, this is is incredibly important stuff. And we probably should have stressed that a little bit harder at the top of the show. Yeah, but I just want to make sure we get that out there. Some people may listen to this like, eh, I've never had a fire. I don't really know anybody that's had one. Well, you know, it could be the same thing, like you said, for self-defense, and I think that's a great one. You may be really well prepared for that, but this is a blind spot that you you definitely need to, to get. And it's easy to fix, right? The things that we're going to talk about here, none of it's going to be hard. All this stuff is easy to, to get on board with and, and get taken care of in a single weekend. Wouldn't you agree with that? Absolutely, man. So the next, well, well, some of this might take a little bit more, especially as we get down into uh, specific things for people that might live in wildfire country. But um, so back to the electrical appliances, one other thing on electrical cords, I would strongly caution against putting the running those things under rugs or under uh, especially rugs in high traffic areas where you're placing a lot of friction on that cord and where that creates the dual problem. Of if that does become frayed, you're not going to notice it because it's hidden by that rug. So uh, run those cords along the baseboards, run them behind your furniture, whatever you need to do. But uh, please don't run those things under rugs or especially through high traffic areas if you can help it. Totally agreed. And uh, you want to talk about the kitchen now? Let's talk about the kitchen, man. The kitchen is a really common uh, place for uh, fires to occur because back to our how to build a fire episode we've taught you guys how to build a fire we're going to teach you how to not accidentally build one out of your house now but um that your oven and your stove in your kitchen basically replaces all the function of a fire and it does so by creating heat in a little bit more controlled manner but we're still creating very intense heats we're still working with a lot of stuff in the kitchen that's very flammable sugar is incredibly flammable these oils and greases that we cook with are incredibly flammable we've got paper towels we've got uh, you know dish towels and all this flammable stuff in the kitchen near this very, very high heat. So uh, first things first, I guess keep your stove and your range hood clean. Those things accumulate grease that can catch on fire, especially if you've got an electric coil stovetop that stuff can fall down in that little thing. You want to you keep that stuff clean, keep it from accumulating. Your range hood will accumulate all kinds of grease. You need to clean that thing out occasionally. If it has a fan... There's probably a filter in there that needs to be replaced, and there's probably that metal screen that needs to be cleaned from time to time. And uh, one more thing on that, if that vents to the exterior of your home, 
you need to keep an eye on that to wherever that vent is and make sure that uh, mice or birds or something like that hasn't nested. And nesting material for almost any animal is going to be very dry, just tender box type material. Uh, you want to keep an eye on that as well. Agreed. And did you talk about keeping a kitchen fire extinguisher handy? Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. And the type of fire extinguisher that you have in your kitchen may be slightly different than one that you have in your vehicle or in other parts of your house. But we'll we'll talk more on that here in a little bit. The last thing on our kitchen thing is uh, never leaving the stove unattended. And I'm going to tell you... Um, when I was with the Red Cross uh, leading and managing these DAT teams, disaster assistant teams that we had here across the state of Tennessee, I would I would look at the stats and the metrics coming out of these things and why the house caught on fire. And, and then my own anecdotal experience when I would respond to these fires. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, Justin, this is probably one of the biggest ones where someone would be cooking some french fries and they turn around to go let the dog out and then the, the neighbors out there and they get into a quick little conversation the grease spills over and next thing you know your kitchen's fully involved so <clears throat> cooking with grease is is a high risk endeavor and I'm going to tell you right now we're going to talk about how to put those grease fires out here in a minute but the other thing you need to know is never ever ever leave that stove unattended especially while you're cooking grease fires I'm sorry. I absolutely agree, man. No question about it. And one thing on that I would add is all your little appliances in your kitchen that create heat, things like your toaster oven, your toasters, stuff like that. If those things aren't being used, just keep those things unplugged, man. Like there, there's too big a risk of, you know, turning that toaster oven on. And we do, we use our toaster oven all the time to, you know, toast bread and uh, cook you cook small like we have one that you can actually bake small things in and stuff like it. it's too easy to bump that thing on and forget about it just keep that thing unplugged when it's not in use it's not that big of a deal to plug it in when you need it i love that idea all right let's talk about dryers dryers man this is one of my pet peeves is dryers uh so first and foremost clean out that damn lint filter uh there's a person in my life that uh man Every time I am at her house, I take a peek at the lint filter, and there's the lint in there is about two inches thick. It's stratified. You can tell it's done eight loads of laundry since the last thing that was cleaned out. That man, dryers are one of the another extremely significant cause of house fires because they produce very intense, very concentrated heat. And because all that lint, like we talked about that lint as an excellent fire starter in our fire starting episode, you need to keep that damn lint filter cleaned out every single time. 100% agree. And I was, I'm glad you referenced our, our fire episode because that lint will make an amazing uh, little tinder bundle. And guess what? Um, here at my house, I don't know if I told you this, man, but the guy that built it, he had the um, the dryer was venting into the crawl space, and for some reason I didn't notice it till we'd lived here for quite some time. And I'm like, where the hell is the lint going? And then I found that he had just it was just dumping out into the crawl space. Well, what kind of danger could that create? You've got all this heat, all this lint blowing around, and maybe one exposed wire. I'm one exposed wire away from my house burning down. So. We spent the 155 bucks to have someone come out and install it correctly according to code so that it's outside the ha- venting outside the house in a safe manner. 
So find out where you're venting. You may be like me, and some contractor screwed you and potentially created a fire hazard. And even if they didn't screw you and create a fire hazard, you still need to keep an eye on that thing and keep it cleaned out regularly. I'd say probably monthly. You need to just take a peek at that thing because I'll tell you, I've seen multiple dryer vents that even though that lint filter is working correctly, enough of that lint gets through that it accumulates uh, inside that vent. And occasionally you'll see a big ball of it blow out and be blowing around your yard. So uh, keep that thing cleaned out as well. Well said, man. And you have a little policy when it comes to uh, the dryer running, right? Absolutely, man. I absolutely never, ever, ever leave my house with the dryer running. I, I'll leave the washer running. Uh, you know, I'll start a load of laundry and run out to the grocery store if I need to. But if that dryer's running, uh, I'm not going anywhere. Or if I have to go somewhere, I'm gonna I'm gonna open that dryer to stop it. I'm gonna make sure it's stopped, and then I'm gonna leave. It's just it's too big a risk. And one other thing I would say about dryers is clean out under those things and behind them occasionally too because lint will accumulate back there as well um just man keep your stuff clean true and if you ever looked underneath the dryer a lot of times they're not enclosed so any of that lint that is could be blown around or somehow get outside it could go up into the wiring underneath the dryer and cause a cause a hazard we've had that happen we saw our dryer performance dip down and i'm like i don't know what's going on here you know it's relatively new let's get somebody out here to take a look at it that's a professional and they just flip it over, and I'm like, oh, crap. I didn't realize it was completely, you know, I would think there would be a, a panel <clears throat> to protect the inner workings and the electronics of the dryer, but there wasn't. So lint had gotten up in there. So, you know, that was news to me. So now it's something that we do probably once or twice a year, tip it back and clean it out. So let's go ahead and talk about fireplaces and wood heat. I know you heat with wood. Uh, my, my, man... I'm just having this sinking realization as we're saying this. My family has heated with wood all their lives. And I'll tell you what, I, you couldn't find a fire extinguisher anywhere in my parents' home. Oh, that is all bad. And, and I, you know, when we decided to um, heat with a wood-burning stove here, um, part of the impetus for that whole sitch was my grandfather had bought an Englander wood-burning stove like back in the 50s and this thing was beautiful it's huge you know and I'm like man I want to I'd love to continue that tradition of heating with this thing so we had it and I had it professionally installed it cost about two grand to have uh, the folks come out and install it correctly because I don't I don't know all the local codes when it's coming to that kind of stuff and I wanted it done correctly so um, we had them put it in, and uh, I think at the end of this month, I've got my chimney sweep coming out, and he's going to do our annual inspection. But i got to admit, yesterday we started our first fire, and I hope to have had it inspected before we started using it, but um, so far, so good. Well, that's good, man. I'm glad to hear that. Um, one thing on this, whether you have this professionally installed, install it yourself, whether it's a fireplace, a wood heater, a wood pellet stove, a, a, a natural gas furnace, whatever it is, you need to make sure that thing is installed in accordance with any manufacturer recommendations and in accordance with your local or state building code. There are reasons that those codes are there. There are reasons that the manufacturer makes those recommendations. So be especially cautious about those things. And, and like you said with the chimney, make sure you have that chimney inspected. I, I mentioned this on another episode, but uh, there was a place I used to rent that had a fireplace. And I just assumed the chimney was good to go. I started building fires. The landlord said, yep, it's fine. Build fires. 
And then uh, she had the chimney inspected probably three months later. And the guy that inspected it said, you need to stop what you're doing right now. This thing is the the insert is installed incorrectly. You were creating a serious hazard. Uh, and, and I noticed that there was like a real strong smoke smell upstairs. And that turns out that's why. And uh, yeah, you, you should absolutely have that chimney inspected. And on that topic, I, this is something I probably would not have thought about, you know, just 10 years ago. But um, with the Red Cross, we I had a couple come into my office, a young couple. You know, they, they were renting this place, very similar to what you're saying. Attractive couple. They were heartbroken. They lost everything because <clears throat> they were using a chimney that the landlord did not tell them was had been deemed unsafe decades before. And they start a fire in there to stay warm. And guess what? It, you know, it, they're like, next thing I know, it the wall, the entire wall was smoking and it was hot, and they were able to escape with 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 their lives. But when when and we'll talk about this later. But once you realize the conditions that there's a fire going on, more than likely you're only going to have about two minutes to get out of there. So um, don't put yourself in that position. Like Justin said, have these things installed in accordance with manufacturer recommendations and in accordance to the local codes, man. Most definitely, brother. So a couple other things on on heat, wood heat especially. Uh, don't burn green wood, and you put in the notes here, go easy on the pine, and I'm going to say also go easy on burning cardboard. I don't burn cardboard in your in your wood heater. You want to talk about why that's important? Yeah, I mean, well, we can talk. Pine, obviously, uh, especially green pine, can really lead to creosote buildup and other things on the inside of the uh, chimney, which could cause chimney fires and all these other things. You can use some pine. I don't like burning trash in the in the fireplace, although there are members of my family that will burn a cardboard box or two when, when Amazon rolls through the, the farm. But I would encourage you not to do that. If you're going to burn pine, it's not necessarily a, a, a no-no. Just make sure that it's incredibly well-seasoned and throw it in there with uh, with your hardwoods. I would not want to burn an, uh, a long-term burning of nothing but pine or other softwoods. It just it, the, the buildup is too much. Yeah, agreed. And uh, so a couple other things on that. Pine... Uh, pine and things like cardboard create an ex- an insanely hot fire and insanely high flames potentially, and that creates another hazard, especially in combination with the creosote buildup of a chimney fire. Uh, and then burning greenwood especially releases a lot of moisture, which uh, mingles with all these other compounds that are in smoke and causes creosote to form too. So be careful what you're burning. Just one other quick thing on any kind of auxiliary heaters. If you're using an electric auxiliary heater or kerosene heater or something along those lines, make sure you're not putting that thing too close to the furniture. Make make sure you're, again, following the manufacturer recommendations on how far away from furniture and other combustibles that thing needs to be. Make sure you're aware of the surface you're putting that thing on um, and not, you know, not stacking things on top of it and, and that sort of thing. Just be, you have to be aware of what you're doing with those things. God, I'm so glad you said that. That That's another one of the things I saw a lot where, where people would buy, uh, you know, they probably lower income folks that only ha- could heat their home or their uh or trailer or what have you with um, these little space heaters. And then they would stack magazines and, and clothes on top of them to dry them out or whatever. And, of course, the you know it's just a matter of time at that point before you have a fire. And then you have all this trip hazard on the way out because you got cords running everywhere and there's stuff in the way. So, like you said, man, 
make sure you're uh, setting those space heaters up in accordance with the manufacturer's recommendations. Yeah, make sure you're being smart about that stuff. And that's kind of on my mind because I've been doing a little research into the uh, the all hazards preparedness episode we're going to do uh, co- coming up sometime in the next few months. So that's that's kind of on the brain right now. Let's talk about specific stuff for people that live in wildfire country. Have you ever lived in a place where wildfires are a significant threat? No, never. Uh, I lived in Southern California, and it's always a specter. And there's, you know, at any given time, it could, you know, it, it could happen. And there were a couple of occasions where we were kind of on alert to, hey, sometime in the next 24 hours, you might get the word that uh, that you, you need to leave. So... Uh, I, I am a little bit familiar with this. I'm not intimately familiar with it, but uh, just protecting your own home and preventing your own home from falling victim to this. First and foremost, cl- you know, keep your grass cut, clear the brush. Excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> this beer is making me burp. Um, just keep all the combustible stuff cleared out away from your house. If you have a big yard full of dried brush and and, and whatever else, man, that's just going to fuel the flames and that thing comes rolling through. Um, if you have, if you burn wood, don't store your firewood where it's likely to catch, keep it in an enclosed location, keep it covered, uh, that sort of thing. And, and don't store it right beside your house. Uh, what else, Rich? Well, I'm looking at your notes here, man. And you have on, it says, uh, use non-flammable landscaping like rocks and stuff like that. So that won't catch fire. Uh, I guess that's probably a good idea. You wouldn't want to stack those old railroad ties that are soaked in creosote right against your house. Yeah. Or, or even, uh, even mulch or things like that, which, uh, yeah, good point. When dry enough can burn and can hold embers really well and, and that sort of thing. Um, your home itself, you want to make sure your eaves and vent openings are secure. You don't want embers blowing in there, uh, which is a really, really common thing. Your home's roof and siding. You probably don't want cedar shake siding if you live in wildfire country. Uh, tile or uh, I'd say even vinyl is going to be better than wood siding in wildfire country or concrete or stucco or something like that. And uh, a tile roof or a metal roof like you have, Rich, is just massively better than an asphalt roof when you get these uh, flaming embers blowing around all over the place. Yeah, I love that. And um, you also have in here, it says put in heat-resistant blinds or curtains and non-combustible shutters. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't real familiar with this, but this is a recommendation I saw come up over and over and over again, is to have uh, heat-resistant curtains and to have shutters that you can actually close and that are fire-resistant because windows, when they get hot, a fire outside of the house, they break really, really easily. Now that fire just has a direct path into the house. So apparently that's kind of a big deal. And even if there's a wildfire burning all around your house, you know, your exterior house might be damaged quite a bit. But uh, this little step right here can potentially save a lot of the stuff on the inside. Yeah, I never thought about that. Good, Good one. All right, man, where are we going from here? All right, let's talk about step two, protect your life if a fire does happen. All right, let's talk about having a plan. Uh, Tell me about this one, man. Well, for starters, only 26% of families have actually developed and practiced a home fire escape plan, 26%. So you need to have a plan. We're going to have in the show notes, um, one of the things that we used to use with the American Red Cross, it's a design your own home fire escape plan it comes with a little graph you're actually going to graph out your house and figure out the most efficient and effective escape routes 
And then once you do that, uh, you create the plan, you run through it a couple of times, then you're going to gather the whole family together because everyone must know the plan, right? Absolutely, man. It actually creates a an incredible hazard if everyone doesn't know the plan and you have to go back in for someone else or, uh, or or someone's running around in the wrong direction or something like that. So yeah, everybody needs to know this plan. Everybody needs to run through it. Yeah. So uh, do you know your exits? Where are they? And which way do they swing? All that kind of stuff, uh, I think, are also equally important. Because you know, especially if you're on a, if your children like my children here are on the second floor, so how are they going to exit the house? Uh, are they going to use escape ladders? Do the windows open? If they don't open, is there a plan to break them? I mean, all this kind of stuff has to be thought out and tested ahead of time. And <clears throat> that escape ladders is not even a thing that I'd even thought about. That's not really applicable to me. So that didn't even occur to me. Uh, do you have those? Do you like? Do you have a recommendation on those? No, we don't. But I've I've seen them at Lowe's, and they're pretty inexpensive. They're they fold up in these small little packages, and as it goes down, there, there's these little aluminum rungs, and there's two ropes on either side. The plan that we have here is uh, to get an aluminum ladder up. It's easy to get off onto the top of the roof here, and then the the plan is a ladder that will let the kids come down off the roof. That's kind of the plan. Oh, gotcha. So there, that the window doesn't open directly over a big drop off. It opens up out onto the roof. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. I understand. Um, but yeah, maybe those uh, maybe those escape ladders are something you should think about. And with testing these exits, if it's a window. I've seen people that haven't opened their windows in five years and decide they're going to open them to let a little air in or whatever, and that window is stuck. It's really hard to get open. You need to test these things. Make sure those windows open smoothly. If you have if you have a double-cylinder deadbolt on a door, that's a deadbolt that takes a key on both sides to open because maybe you, you have glass nearby or something like that. You need to have that key nearby the door in a place that someone can easily find that. And by the way... Those are probably not up to building code. If that's a if that's an exit that would be used in a fire, that's probably against any kind of building code in just about any jurisdiction in the United States because that requires some sort of special tool to get out of the house. I'm not telling you not to do it, but if you do, I would have that key very close to that door. I'd make sure everybody knows where it is. I'd have it on some sort of glow in the dark lanyard, so if it you know if it falls to the floor in a hurry, you can find it easily. Like you said, if, if that window needs to be broken, do you have a glass break nearby? Um, and back to your point of you have two minutes, you need to know how this stuff works because uh, w- when it's time to perform, the time to prepare is over. Correct. And I'm going to tell you, <clears throat> it's real easy to get a stopwatch on your on your iPhone and set it. And once the you know you set the alarm, everybody's got two minutes to get out of the house and get to the meeting spot that, that you're going to pre-designate uh, ahead of time so that you know, is my family all together? We're standing under the big oak tree in the front yard. Okay, we're all here or no, we're not. Then what's the plan? And time it. And you should be doing this twice a year. Do do the planning twice a year because things inside your home change. You're going to rearrange things. You've got to redo the plan twice a year, and then you've got to go through it until everybody can escape. And under two minutes, especially if you have children, because children and older adults are twice as likely to die in a home fire than the Amer- than than the you know adult population here in America. So make sure you're taking care of those kids and and any elderly uh, folks that are living with you. Uh, and just one thing to throw on that, I don't know what your recommendation is here, what your uh, what your philosophy is here, but for me, 
my pets are very, very important to me. So I'm also going to plan for them, plan for a way to get them out of the fire, uh, out of the house in the event of a fire. And, um, you know, I, uh, obviously I'm, I, well, I don't know, man, I'm going to say I wouldn't risk human life, uh, to get them out, but it came right down to it. I guess I'd have to see what I did in the moment because it, it would be awful hard to, uh, to leave the, leave my dogs in here. So, uh, if that is a consideration for you, that's maybe something you want to think about. Make sure you can, you know, lift your pet up through that window and and whatever the case may be. Well, and like for here, you know, the pets stay on the first floor. They don't go upstairs so that, that my children don't have to mess with it. That's my responsibility. That's one of the reasons why they stay down here with me. I don't want my kids getting killed trying to take care of a pet. That's dad's responsibility. But the other thing is, you know, with pets, they're lower to the ground, so they're going to be underneath the smoke more often than not. And the other thing is with your kids, and I, I don't even know if we have it on the show notes, but... <clears throat> You've got. You're going to have to stay low, stay underneath that smoke. Obviously, when you go up to a door, don't just open it and cause a backdraft condition to to burn you alive. If it's hot, move to a secondary exit. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, man, I feel like we're not even getting into some of the very very basics of fire safety stuff. Uh, you know, testing the door with the back of your hand to see if it's warm or not before you open it. And with the back of your hand, which is more sensitive than the palm of your hand, um, uh, staying low to avoid breathing the smoke in all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And if you do, here's one of those things. If you do come to a block exit, you can't get out. You put your hand back of your hand against the door. The door's hot. You're staying low. You're doing everything right. But this door is the only way out guess what? It's time to place a towel under that door, call the fire department, alert them to your location, where you're at, go to a window, signal for help. If it's, you know, if you can't, if you, if it's going to be a broken ankle or I'm going to burn to death or choke, choke to death on this fire, I'm going to take that broken angle. But if you're five, six, eight stories up, maybe waving some bright colored cloth or a flashlight is the only thing you can do to alert them to where you're at, then that's better than nothing. Would you agree? I absolutely would. Another good, re- another awesome, awesome reason to have an EDC flashlight in your pocket. Uh, I take uh, every night when I go to bed. I take my pants off. I put them in the same place. I put my shoes in the same place every night, and my, uh, you know, I know where my flashlight is. Because you're a competent and dangerous individual. <laughs> um, all right, man. So should we talk about smoke detectors? Yeah, let's do it. So these things are going to. Uh, you 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 brought this stat to us. Having a working smoke alarm reduces your chances of dying by nearly a half, by nearly 50% in the event of a fire, and two-thirds of U.S. house fire deaths are directly caused by a complete lack of smoke detectors or smoke detect. Excuse me, smoke detectors with old or missing batteries. So you've got to put these things in, you've got to maintain them, and I know you've got a lot to say on smoke detectors, so take it away, Rich. Yeah, um, I was talking to Justin before the uh, the episode, and when I was with the Red Cross, I led the uh, nation when I was the regional manager for preparedness here in the state of Tennessee. We led the nation in getting smoke detectors put into homes, and uh, there's several variables responsible for that, uh, some amazing volunteers, and we had some grants and some other things, but... What we found was when you look at a map across the state, and I'm sure every every state's this way, Tennessee's nothing, nothing special, It these fires are occurring in the lower-income communities, the lower-income homes. So what we did was we went into um, uh, government-assisted housing. You would think that these things would come with fire, de- 
fire detectors and things of this nature, smoke detectors already, not always the case. The other thing we did is we went into these uh, trailer communities and, and installed them and helped them develop a plan because these things absolutely save lives. When you look at the data that comes out of fatal fires, it's staggering that they don't have smoke detectors. And you're like, my God, you know, these people didn't have to die. Uh, if they would have been alerted to this fire, they could have easily gotten out of here. But for the lack of a smoke detector or a, a couple of missing, you know, three dollars worth of missing batteries, the f- whole family perished. You know, it's just tragic. It definitely is, man. So there's actually uh, a couple different types of smoke detectors. Are you, how familiar are you with this? A little bit. I'm I'm looking at the notes here. Photoelectric. I have some of those. I have some ionization ones. That's primarily the one I use in my kitchen. Photoelectric I normally have outside of the kids' rooms, and then I have some that are a combination of the two, which I really like. And some of them come with a little LED light on them. I'll let you take it from there. Oh, yeah, so there's there are ionization, photoelectric, and combination. So the ionization uh, smoke detectors are not very good at detecting smoldering fires. So if you've got a smoldering fire that's creating a ton of smoke that uh, ionization detector is it, it might take 10 or 15 minutes for that thing to actually pick that up whereas a photoelectric detector will pick that up generally in uh, around five minutes uh, if you have a really fast open flame fire that's going to be detected more quickly by an ionization detector and pretty soon thereafter by a photoelectric so my recommendation on these is it costs a little bit more money. These are maybe 25 bucks a piece, but my recommendation would be to have combination smoke detectors, that combination of ionization and photoelectric detectors because it gives you the most coverage that, that you can possibly get. And there are um, there are little codes on there. The letter P indicates photoelectric, I indicates ionization, and D indicates dual, dual technology, which means it uses both of those. And if it doesn't have that code on there, you should probably get out your uh, your uh, Google machine, Google your make model of smoke detector and figure out what it is because those can make a huge, huge difference, especially when we have things like a couch and carpet and curtains that are just smoldering because these things give out all types of toxic chemicals. They don't create a big fire. Uh, or I mean, they may create a big fire, but even if they don't, they're putting all kinds of toxic chemicals in the air, and you want to be alerted to that quickly. Yeah, and, and I know we're going to talk about when to test these things, but I'd also say install a smoke alarm on every level of your home and specifically outside the sleeping areas. And outside the sleeping areas here on the farm, uh, I've got the ones like I was talking about that have the little LED light so that once the alarm goes off, the escape route is illuminated. So I really like that, and it's just a couple of bucks more. It's definitely worth it. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I had no idea that was even a thing, man. Oh, yeah. So you want to talk about when and why and how to test the batteries? Yeah, I would say you need to test these things monthly. There's probably a uh, – what you need to do is get up on a uh, – safely get get yourself elevated up on a ladder because your smoke detectors are probably on your ceiling or they probably should be. And if they're not on your ceiling, they should probably be mounted very high up on a wall. Uh, get up there and press that test button and make sure that thing works. Make sure it – gives out that, you know, nice, good, strong, audible alarm. If your smoke detector is chirping every now and then, that is an indication to you that those batteries need to be changed. 
Now, Rich, most of our smoke detectors in our homes, especially if you live in an apartment building or home that is of kind of recent vintage, have electricity running directly to them through the you know, through the house power. Why do you need to worry about a battery in that? Well, because what if your home loses power and you're out of you're out of uh, power for a couple of days? What, what what's going to back them up? Yeah, or or even if that fire destroys uh, some of the electrical wiring that brings power to that smoke detector, you want to make sure that thing is powered no matter what. Um, change changing those batteries, uh, they need to be changed, man. Um, What's your recommendation on how often to do this? Well, I think changing batteries probably need to be done biannually, but I also recommend, <clears throat> and this is what we installed with the um, with our fire campaign, was those 10-year lithium batteries, the smoke detectors that had them in there, so that it's kind of a fire-and-forget weapon system. You just put it in there, and they don't have to sweat it for 10, for 10 years. And while I'm on the subject, if you don't have them, if you start developing your plan, you're you're a competent, dangerous individual. You go to our show notes. You're going to pull down the fire escape planning sheet. You're going to pull down the home fire escape plan, and you're going to start creating this stuff, and you're, and you're going to identify where you need your smoke detectors. If you, for some reason, you don't have the money, call the American Red Cross in your community. See if they have some. See if they can get you some. Call your local fire department. More often than not, uh, these agencies have some that they're more than happy to give you or even come to your house and set up for you. Absolutely, man. And if worse comes to worse and you absolutely can't afford a smoke detector, um, man, I'll just say it on the air. If you absolutely cannot afford a smoke detector, you can't find somebody that will give you one, uh, get in touch. I'd be glad to buy somebody a, a couple of smoke detectors. Yeah, I love it. Uh, let's. Uh, but before before we go on, but this isn't in the notes, but but it got me thinking. You know, I heat with wood heat, and if you heat with wood heat or some other like kerosene heaters and some of these other things that you have an open flame in your house, I think it probably couldn't hurt to have a carbon monoxide detector. And I, I know that we're getting a little bit away from fire here, but when we talk f- fire and flame, I often think of some of those other gases that can can come off of these things man and carbon monoxide detectors i have one in um in all the bedrooms uh well the one bedroom downstairs and then one in the living room downstairs and then one upstairs but um th- these things i tell you dude this is this is something that that really worries me yeah absolutely and carbon monoxide detectors are a little bit more expensive but they tend to last for a very long time i think they're usually you need to change out that um you need to change out those carbon monoxide detectors. I think it's every ten years, Rich. Right? I'm I'm seeing every five to six years. But okay, okay. So you're you're probably a little more savvy on that than I am. It's been a little while since I've needed to maintain a uh, a carbon monoxide detector. But yeah, you should absolutely have one of those in your home. And so we have backup propane heat, and then we have a wood burning stove, and then we have you know some other things. I'm like, man, with all this stuff that has the ability to generate these types of gases, I think I'd be foolish not to spend the extra, you know, 50 bucks and have a couple of these in the house. Yeah, definitely, man. And and one other thing on that, since we're on the topic, you never, ever, ever want to use your oven to uh, to heat your home. Oh, no, that's all bad. And you know what? A lot of people do that. A lot of people do that. And especially with gas ovens, you're, you're potentially giving off carbon dioxide or carbon, carbon monoxide by using that oven in that in that way for which it's not intended. So, yeah, do not do that. All right, so where do we go from here, brother? 
All right. Uh, so if a fire does break out, hopefully our smoke detector is going to give us plenty of advance warning. We're going to have a plan. We're going to get out of there if all else has failed and, and that fire is actually going. But we may need a fire extinguisher. And I think there, you know, there are some specific locations in the home. It's maybe a little bit more important to have a fire extinguisher. If I wake up in the middle of the night to the smoke alarms going off, I'm probably not going to try to fight that fire. But if I'm in the kitchen and a fire breaks out, I, I may try to put I'm, I'm not just going to write the house off. I'm probably going to try to put it out. Uh, so let's talk about the types of fires that, that you might run into. You want to hit these? Well, and when I'm looking at them in the notes before, but when I was just doing my planning for this, this is something that, you know, you as a former volunteer firefighter are all over. So I would encourage you to do it. I'm, I'm going to butcher this thing. Okay. Th- this stuff isn't too complicated, but uh, you got your class A fires, which are just your ordinary combustibles, paper, wood, furniture, wallpaper, that sort of stuff. Uh, your class B fires, your flammable liquids, gasoline, that sort of thing. Uh, class C fires are energized electric equipment, meaning there's actually power going to those things. If you remove power to that thing, it just becomes a one of the other classes of fire. Uh, class D, hopefully we're not going to run into in the home. That's combustible metals like magnesium or, or that sort of thing. Uh, and then class K fires, really, really common for house fires, are cooking oils and fats that have caught on fire. So the type of um, fire that you're likely to run into is probably going to impact the type of fire extinguisher that you want to get. And we'll talk about the different types of extinguishers a little bit. But generally speaking, if you're buying one for your home, you just want to look for the good old class ABC fire extinguisher, which will cover those ordinary combustibles, flammable liquids, and that energized electric equipment. Yeah, spot on, man. And um so basically, if I understand this correctly, I probably should have a slightly different extinguisher for the different rooms in my house. Would you go as far as to say that? Uh, possibly so, man. Um, all of these work by by doing one of a few things. So there's like water mist fire, fire extinguishers, and they just spray out a very fine mist of water. And this is not your more typical water fire extinguisher. It's very specialized. And all that does is put so much water mist in the air in that fire that it takes away the heat. Uh, most of our fire extinguishers, like our dry chemical uh, fire extinguishers that are your common type ABC extinguishers, they're actually going to remove oxygen from that fire by putting this dry chemical compound into the air, which gets into that gaseous reaction and breaks up that chemical reaction by not letting the fuel have access to oxygen any longer. So... Yeah, you kind of have to think about what exactly you're fighting. Um, talk to me a little bit about cooking fires. Is a fire extinguisher what you're going to use on a grease fire? How do you deal with that? No, not necessarily. And I will tell you, you know, never, ever, ever use water on a grease fire. Let me say it again. Never use water on a grease fire. When these things tend to go up, they go up very fast. Little grease spills over the side. You know, you're, you know, you're, uh, cooking some, I don't know, French fries or whatever the case is. And when it goes, it's going to go real quick. And your first panic, startled response is going to be get some water and dump it on there. But what you're going to do is create the, a bigger, more dangerous fire. Uh, there's a couple different things you can do. If you don't have a fire extinguisher that's specifically designed for Class K, then you can dump uh, baking soda. Uh, you can dump salt on it, but those are the two that will probably work the best. And there's some reasons that that are uh, a chemistry guy could tell you I, I couldn't, but that make those excellent extinguishers for the cooking fires. Yeah, yeah. You you want to 
dump some sort of dry compound on there. It definitely does not, you do not want to use sugar, which is also flammable. Um, so yeah, yeah, man, uh, you have to use the right tool for the right job when it comes to this stuff. So, uh, yeah. You know, you could eat, and I don't mean to cut you off, man, but one other thing, cause you, you, you're absolutely right. Those, uh, like the bacon soda and stuff like that will, you know, work to smother it. But the other thing is if you have some big kitchen towels, you can throw the kitchen towels on there. A lot of times that will help to extinguish the flame because it just smothers them out. Yeah. And Amazon does sell, um, there are these little mini fire extinguishers. It's basically a big aerosol can, like you'd get a can of hairspray or something in that are good for class ABCK fires. And they're meant to stay in your kitchen, very near at hand to the stove. And you probably don't want to put that in the cabinet above the stove. So if that thing's on fire, you got to reach above that fire to get it. You probably want to have it, you know, somewhere else, but, but kind of readily accessible uh, that you can use on a grease fire. And that's exactly what we have in our kitchen. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, what else do we need to say on uh, on fire extinguishers, Rich? Well, I, then I think another thing we should probably say is how to actually use them. And uh, the acronym that uh, you have here in the notes that I'm also familiar with was PASS. You want to talk about that? Yeah, PASS. Uh, this is exactly how you use a fire extinguisher. You pull the pin, you pull, aim. You aim low toward the base of the fire. That's where you're going to get the most result. You don't want to aim at the top of the flames. You want to aim at that interaction between the fuel, whatever it happens to be, and the flames themselves. Squeeze, squeeze the lever, and sweep side to side. So pull, aim, squeeze, sweep. Uh, And always when you're using a fire extinguisher, this is very important. You don't want to back yourself into the corner in the kitchen to fight that fire. You want to keep your back safely toward an exit. So if you're unsuccessful, you actually have a way to get out of that area, get out of your house uh, before that fire becomes even worse. And, and basically, you want to pull this thing. If you exhaust that fire extinguisher and that fire is not out, that's pretty much it, man. You're, you're, you're not going to stay there and, and try to fight it through some other uh through some other way. That's pretty much it because it's probably out of hand by that point. And if it is out of hand and you do exit, you know, the, from the stuff I've read, you never, ever, ever want to go back in. Once you're, you and your family are out of the out of the fire, you're out of the danger, stay there and, and stay safe. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that, Rich. So where, are, where do we want to have fire extinguishers? How many do we need in the home? Where do we want to put those things? Well, I tell you, I, I, I'm going to defer to your professional judgment, but I would tell you that we have the one class k uh fire extinguisher that's that we keep in the kitchen it's slightly bigger than an aerosol then we've got a, i've got a large commercial grade in the uh main living room that's easily accessible for everybody else in the house and then of course i got one in the um, in the vehicle where else should they be well uh so i i totally agree with you that you should keep one in the kitchen that's capable of fighting those class k fires and you know, let your let your budget be your guide. I, I would say go with the best thing that you could afford. You probably want a fire extinguisher near any kind of wood heat, any kind of auxiliary space heater, kerosene heater, whatever that is, like you have near your wood heat. You may want to have one in your bedroom, and pretty much the purpose of that one is to basically create a safe exit for you. If you, you know, if there's one way out of that bedroom, um, obviously if the if the building is fully involved, you're not going to, you know, with the exception of your bedroom, you're not going to try to wade through that with a fire extinguisher. Uh, But if there's a, you know, a a fire between you and the door, you want to be able to create a safe exit for yourself. 
uh, I would say those are the key places you probably want to have a fire extinguisher. And man, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell on myself here. I've I've been living in this apartment for about six months, and I don't have a single fire extinguisher in here, man. I'm gonna go out to the store and I'm gonna correct that as soon as we get off the uh, off the phone today. Well, and and full disclosure, I don't have one in my bedroom, but I I should. And guess what? I'm going to be purchasing at Lowe's today. So again, this, I think the thing about uh, this podcast is we're continuing to continuing to evolve. Like we want to, we you know, we want to go back on the EDC because there's a lot of things that you and I have made some minor adjustments on our kit that might be interesting for the listener. But um, yeah, I mean, we're we're not above reproach on all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely, man. We we are not the people saying we have it all figured out. We are living the uh, we are ATPAF. Um, we're constantly growing on this stuff too, and I, I learn stuff from you every episode, and I learn stuff from our listeners when they write in, and I learn stuff from you know people I talk to uh, that have listened to the show. And hey, have you thought about this? So yeah, absolutely, man. Um, we also want to maintain our fire extinguishers, right? Yeah. If the fire extinguisher has ever been used, even for just a small uh, squirt, you probably need to get 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 rid of it, get it replaced. I mean, I, this is something that you don't want to screw around with. Definitely check that the ensure that the level is is where it needs to be. If there's any kind of rust around the top, if it's whatever, change it. If there's something wrong with the pressure gauge, get rid of it. It's not worth uh, the risk. And I, I would say probably buy one with a pressure gauge so you can actually keep an eye on that. That's not going to be a perfect indicator, but it is, it is going to be a pretty good indicator of whether that extinguisher is going to be ready uh, to go when you need it or not. Rich, do you know anything about are, are fire extinguishers rechargeable? If if uh, if you buy like a commercial grade one and use it, can you take that somewhere and have it recharged? I want to say the answer is yes, but uh, I would have to defer to a fireman on that one. I, I actually have no idea, man. Um, and, and probably the fire extinguishers I buy are not going to be absolute top of the line, uh, you know, commercial grade. Like these things can get very expensive. Uh, I'm probably looking in, you know, the 25 to $50 range. But um, I, I, I think that's well worth it for the uh, safety it potentially provides when you need that. Uh, I guess that's the last thing I got on that. Just make sure that lever works. Uh, you can you can pop that pin out. Make sure that thing's not rusted in there or anything along those lines. If you got a fire extinguisher that's so old it's rusty, might be time to replace that thing anyway. Um, you mentioned fire extinguishers in vehicles, and one thing I want to hit on really quickly here is you want to vary the orientation of that fire extinguisher from time to time. If it's always you know if you've got it in a a holder, one of those little snap holders that holds it upright against the A pillar of your car or something. The the movement and the vibration of your car will force all those chemicals down to the bottom and they'll become compacted. So occasionally you want to flip that thing around uh, just to keep those chemicals nice and loose in there instead of having them become really compacted at the bottom. Yeah, great idea. I never thought about that. So uh, let's see, we talked about step one, prevent uh, fire from happening in the first place. Talk Step two, protect your life if a fire does happen. Now let's move on to step three, Justin, protect your stuff. Okay, man, this is in no particular order. Uh, I would say first and foremost, you probably want to have insurance on your stuff. And there's there's you know a couple different prongs to this. First of all, obviously, if you're a homeowner, you're going to have homeowner's insurance. Uh, if you're a renter, though, you should probably think about having some renter's insurance. Uh, e- even if it's kind of a stretch for you to pay for every month, 
I'll tell you, it's going to be cheaper in the long run than replacing all of your stuff. You, you probably want to have some renter's insurance. If you own some expensive jewelry, some expensive firearms, some expensive whatever items that are going to be difficult financially to replace, you might also consider a valuable personal property insurance from your insurance agent. And that will probably involve something like sending them a photograph of your items or serial numbers or something along those lines. But being able to replace those very expensive items that might be lost in a fire might be important to you. Uh, Anything to add on insurance? No, I, no, I think you covered it well. Okay, uh, for your uh, for your personal data, I would say it's important to have a backup and have that somewhere other than inside your house. Because if it's in your house and your house burns up, it's not going to do you any good. I I would probably have an offsite backup, and that could be as simple as making a copy of your stuff uh, to a hard drive and leaving it with a friend. That could be as complicated as having some sort of cloud-based backup and some sort of off-site location through, uh, you know, as bad as I hate to say it, something like Dropbox, or, or you could set up your own Amazon web server, or I don't know, something. It needs to be outside of your house in any case, because the destruction of one single location shouldn't destroy all your data and all your ability to prove ownership of insurance policies, ownerships of personal property like vehicles and uh, uh homes, owner, uh, your identity documents like your birth certificates and social security cards and driver's licenses and passports and credentials and concealed carry permits and all that good stuff. That would be my next thing I'd worry about is having a backup of that critical data because when your home is burned down and you're trying to replace that stuff, it's going to be much harder to do if you can't prove who you are and that you own that stuff and that that's really your retirement account. And we have two um, two fireproof safes that we keep all of our passports and and you know diplomas and degrees and all this other stuff. But um, I would encourage you to check on this from time to time because we went somewhere recently and we had to dig in and get the social security cards out. And uh, I just happened to be in the closet and I looked in both of those boxes. Those fireproof uh, safes were open. Crack just about an inch, just enough for fire to get in there and ruin everything in there. So make sure that they're secured properly so that the and in the event of a fire, they can actually do their job. Let me tell you one other thing on safes, and, and we'll, we'll go into safes, but uh, this was a, a, a very special list, ugh, a very special listener named uh, Cheryl actually uh, reminded us of this. But your safe should not only be fireproof, it should also be waterproof. Because what's the fire department going to do when they come in there? They're going to soak everything down with water. And if your safe is not waterproof, very good likelihood that thing's going to be flooded. And that's just going to wreak havoc on all of your important documents. Oh, yeah. Spot on. So uh, are we ready to talk about safes? Yeah, man. Okay. So there is a wide, wide range of ratings that a safe might have for fire protection. So the baseline uh, criteria for a safe is that it will keep the internal temperature at 350 degrees or below for a certain period of time under a certain amount of stress. So there's a reason for that. Paper begins to combust or char at 350 degrees. So that's the intent is to protect important papers inside of a fire safe. Now, uh, you'll normally see two things. You'll see a temperature and you'll see a duration of time. Something like three, uh, uh, one hour at 1,700 degrees, which meaning that fire can reach 1,700 degrees 
and it can remain at that temperature for up to one hour and keep the internal temperature at 350 degrees or below. So there are various certifications for this. Uh, the Underwriters Laboratory certification is probably the best one. They have two classes, uh, rating class 352 hour, which means that fire can reach 850 degrees and for two hours, all your stuff's good to go. Or 351 hour, which means it can reach 1700 degrees and remain there for one hour and all your stuff will still be fine. In addition, the UL uh, certification also certifies that your safe won't explode. So if the internal air heats up and there's moisture in there, uh, it won't create so much pressure that the safe itself explodes and creates a hazard. And the other thing that UR, UL certification specifies is an impact test. So they'll burn it at this temperature, uh, and then they will drop it 30 feet onto brick with a heavy concrete base, and your safe shouldn't come open under that impact because if your safe is on a second floor or even on a ground floor with a basement below it or a, you know a very deep crawl space below it, if that safe falls through the floor and cracks, you lose all your protection right there. So that UL certification is absolutely the best one. The next level of certification is through an organization called ETL Intratech, and their certifications are very, very uh, similar kind of thing. They have a 45-minute rating, a 90-minute rating, and a 120-minute rating. And very similar type of certification. I would trust the UL, the UL rating or the ETL Intertech ratings uh, for for my uh, for my safes. What you should be cautious of is a lot of manufacturers say this is factory certified, which means they certified that at their location under the under their own standards. There's no oversight for that whatsoever. So you may or may not be getting any actual protection from that at all. It's just on the manufacturer to come up with their own standard and and say that they meet it. All right, what else do we need to know about safes, man? Uh, well, uh, you can uh, you can definitely choose where to where to put it. A basement is going to be the best because a fire is going to be the coolest uh, in a basement. Or if you don't have a basement on the ground floor, it's going to be the hottest on successive floors. Uh, so you can you can uh, set yourself up for success by keeping that thing low. Also, if you have a and man, some of these gun safes get up to several hundred to to you know a thousand, couple thousand pounds. Uh, you create a massive hazard if you put that thing on the second floor of it falling through the floor in the event of a house fire. So keep that thing as low as you can get it. Uh, one other thing is media coolers. So there are inserts for safes called media coolers that are made for your hard drives, your camera cards, your flash drives, things like that. Don't assume you have protection just putting those things in the safe. And here's why. That's, uh, that safe protects things to 350 degrees which is far, far above the temperature at which DVDs, CDs, hard drives, flash drives, they're going to be destroyed at 350 degrees. Those things need to be kept somewhere around 100 degrees. So a media cooler is a little box that is meant to be used in conjunction with a safe. You can't use it standalone. It goes inside your safe and it protects your digital media. So those are things I would look for if I were choosing a safe uh, to protect my stuff from fire. And I would probably, to be quite honest, if I were buying a safe, and I'm not going to buy a, another safe until I actually buy a home to put it in, I would look at the fire protection. I would pay much more careful attention to that than I would the burglar protection because you're far more likely 
the, the fire is the much more likely event to happen to you. Dude, I had never heard of a media cooler. I'm going to have to read up on that. I, that's good stuff. And I'm sure we'll have all this in the show notes. So uh, we'll have some links to some good media coolers if you're if you're like me and you've never ever heard of that before. Yeah. So uh, and then I guess the last thing for protecting stuff is, uh, you know, your EDC bag. Uh, we refer back to that episode a lot. Uh, having that EDC bag with a little bit of money in it, a, a warming layer, a hat and some gloves, uh, maybe a change of clothes, some, yeah, a key to your car, all that stuff will pay off dividends if the unthinkable happens and your house actually burns down. And, you know, it, you could you could probably go crazy with this and stage things closer to the door that you would want to get out in a hurry or whatever. But uh, for me, man, if my house is on fire, I'm worried about getting my ass out of there. And just as importantly, Kai's butt out of here and the dog's out of here. I'm not too worried about the stuff because all of it's replaceable. But if uh, if I've got time to grab that EDC bag, I'm definitely going to. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think I don't think that hurts at all, especially if you keep it somewhere accessible in your bedroom. Um, anything else, man, on protecting your stuff? Man, I, I, I think that's just about got it. We talked about preventing a fire from happening, which is the most important thing you can do. We talked about protecting your life if a fire does happen, which is also very important. And then this is a distant, distant third, protecting your stuff. Yeah, protect your stuff, but man, worry about your life safety first. Everything's replaceable, every single thing except the people and the pets that you love. So uh, what's the book of the week this week? The book of the week this week, Rich, has nothing to do with the topic that we're doing at all, not even a little bit. It's completely out of left field, but it's a book that I have sincerely enjoyed just opened up a whole new line of thinking for me and it's called how to change your mind what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness dying addiction depression and transcendence and i know i recommended this to you a while back and i believe you read it didn't you i actually didn't read it uh you recommended about the same time i heard uh, michael Pollan talk about it on the joe rogan show and i i thought it was amazing and i definitely need to to go get me a copy yeah, we'll we'll make sure a link to that Joe Rogan show is in the show notes as well because he does a really good synopsis of the book uh, within the confines of that couple hour show. The book is it, it is a very very long book, but basically Michael Pollan, who is a famous food writer, he's written about architecture. He's written a, and and he gets into all these topics by actually doing it. When he was writing about architecture, he actually built a house with his own two hands using uh, more traditional construction techniques like post and beam rather than you know modern stick building when he writes about food he i think is one of his early food books was the omnivore's dilemma he actually went out and hunted a wild boar he collected wild mushrooms he uh, he gets very involved in what he's writing about and for this he actually took psychedelics and wrote about the experiences and he looked at a lot of the modern medical research into psychedelics and psychedelics gets a bad rap because of people like Timothy Leary with you know LSD in the 60s and 70s and you know basically just coming off as an absolute crazy person but this is a pretty well respected guy that talks about things like how psychedelics have the ability to help people cope with imminent death in the face of terminal illness how psychedelics have helped people uh, with post-traumatic stress and help them deal with that and, and uh, reimagine those experiences to be able to deal with that in a more productive way uh, what it teaches us about ourselves and I'll admit I have not taken psychedelics as a result of this book, but I do find the topic fascinating. And uh, one of the more frustrating things is 
how psychedelics are classified. They're, they're classified up there with things like heroin, which is highly addictive. I don't think you'd find a person in the world that would argue heroin is not highly addictive. But uh, the thing about almost all of these psychedelics is the more you use them, the less of an impact you get, they, you basically become immune to them very, very quickly. Uh, so there's, there's no dependence, there's no uh, addiction at all, but they're classified that way. And as a result, it's very hard to do legitimate medical research on these compounds that could potentially change things in ways that we can't even imagine yet. Yeah, and this is what fascinates me is the stoned ape philosophy and some of these other things as to what what psychedelics may have meant to human evolution. And I don't know, it's fascinating, man, and I'm very much looking forward to reading this book. Yeah, it's it's an excellent book, and I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, even if you have no interest in the topic, it is just loaded with interesting facts. And it's, you know, like I say, it's not just some crazy person trying to explain to you what their uh, what their trip was like that that makes no sense what whatsoever. It's a very reasoned, very measured, very thoughtful book, and I I really appreciated it. All right, brother, um, you mean to take us out? Take us out, man. All right, guys and gals, thanks for listening to Justin and I ramble today about protecting your home from fire and protecting your loved ones and yourself. We'd also like to welcome you to check out our show notes at acrossthepeak.com where you'll find everything you ever wanted to know about developing a plan and keeping your butt safe from home fires. Till next week, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.